This is Linux at Work, Episode 1, for the 27th of January, 2015. Welcome, I'm your host, John Shire, along with my co-host, Chester Wisniewski. Hi, Chester. Hey, John. How are you doing tonight? Not too shabby. I'm uh, sitting here in my cold basement out of the elements. Um, it's a little bit uh, cooler and uh, snowier than where you're at these days. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm out here in Vancouver. It's been pretty lovely out here, but uh, um, we, we I guess I'm kind of uh, excited to get the podcast finally off the ground. We've been talking about this for I know a little over a year because that was when I purchased the domain name, and uh, we were trying to kind of figure out the format. What exactly were we going to do? You know, we had this idea that we knew we wanted to cover information that would be useful to people using Linux professionally, and well, that may. Um, to a degree, end up focusing a bit on desktop usage in a business. Uh, you don't want to cover kind of all the aspects of using Linux professionally. And there's so many other podcasts out there talking about gaming and Steam and, and proprietary video drivers and all this other stuff. And and, and, they're, and they're great. I didn't see any reason, you know, for us to kind of go down that road. But both of us have been using, uh, you know, Linux in a business kind of way for a while. And we were like, oh, you know, how do we... How do we put this together? So I'm glad we kind of came to some conclusions around it. And and initially, I think what we've decided to do, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is to go about this from a, hey, let's, you know, every basically two weeks do a podcast on news that's relevant to uh, a professional use of Linux. And then in between, we're going to spend time kind of doing like in-depth reviews, deep dives on topics and explain all the pros and cons and caveats of a given thing. And those will kind of have a longer life, uh, be, be, be a bit of the long tail kind of thing where we may um, spend a month researching all the latest on file systems and then do a, like a really in-depth podcast all about file systems and how you might choose which one is best for a given application workload, a desktop, a laptop, whatever it might be, What you know, because these things have all these different trade-offs. So there's going to kind of be a, a two sets of podcasts. So these numbered ones will be the news ones. And then we'll have topic-specific ones that are about uh, kind of longer living things that aren't uh, a flash in the pan that just happened this week and we don't really care next week. Yeah, that's right. So with these news podcasts, you know, we want to be able to look at things that, you know, we are experiencing in our day-to-day activities as being Linux users in a, in a professional context, uh, things that might impact us. And we'll, we'll discuss a few of those things as we get, get going. And as you said, the longer ones, the more in-depth ones are going to be uh, more of a, a reference point for people looking to dive into that professional world of, of using Linux. So I, to kick off the first news one, we'll uh, kind of start with an interesting story I thought was interesting because I've actually been working on this lately. There's a story on Pharonix, uh by Michael Larabelle around... Google changing the Chrome OS operating system to make it a little easier to boot things that aren't part of their dig- digital signature chain. So if you haven't played with a Chrome OS device, uh, you know, part of the uh, promise from Google is it's this amazingly secure thing because, you know, the bootloader, every bit of code leading to every next bit of code, sort of like an iPhone, is digitally signed and can't be tampered with. So it's super secure, very hard to hack, that kind of thing. And while it's been possible to load Linux on them for a while, um, you had to kind of bend over backwards and jump through some hoops. It was a bit awkward. And they are releasing some changes to make it much, much easier to boot from a USB thumb drive, boot from alternative media, etc., without that stuff being signed. And I was pretty excited about that because I think the Chromebook is an incredibly cool thing for the price. 
Yeah, it certainly is. And and both you and I tra travel a lot and we've talked about this in the past of, you know, we do we carry our own machines with all the data that we have that some of it might be potentially proprietary. And, and you know, if, if you end up uh, somehow being the target of some TSA officials bad day, uh, making, you know, them sort of asking you for the keys to the kingdom, if you will, and, and to, to decrypt your laptop, because obviously we've got our stuff encrypted. Um, you know, do you want to deal with that? Or would you rather just say, hey, yeah, yeah, I've got this Chromebook here with nothing on it and go ahead, have fun with it. So uh, from that standpoint, I think Chromebooks really are a great little tool there. And, and just from the sake of portability, right, they're light, they're easy to carry around. You don't have to T-Rex on a plane when you're trying to work on something. Um, so all, all of that is great. And I think that with Google finally just saying, all right, we're going to make it a little easier, the less, uh, you know, hacking, if you permit the use of that term that you have to do uh, of the actual operating system of the software means that, you know, you're, you're not actually getting around some of the potential security that they've put into the device. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a big fan of Chrome OS itself. I mean, that was always the reason I have not used them much. Like uh, you and I have both used them at work for actually I quite like the way we use them for like trade show stuff because quite cool because you can put an RDP extension into the Chrome browser on the thing and just remotely control, you know, a cloud based VM with all of our products on it to do demos at, you know, RSA and all these trade shows and things. It's pretty neat. But as an individual, I kind of want to run programs on my machine. I'm not a giant fan of the cloud. I don't want Google having all my docs and Google having all my slides and Google having all my email. And you're kind of forced into this really Google centric world with Chrome OS. So that's what, you know, intrigued me about this, because while there's not a lot of uh, storage capacity on these Chromebooks, there's enough. If there's just simply enough for me to get an Arch install, an Ubuntu install, something like that on it, where I can put some useful tools, perhaps encrypt the thing, um, you know, have a, uh, my Firefox available to me and not be forced into using Chrome, um, you know, just those kind of simple things, then, yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting alternative because uh, the number of times I cross international borders in a year um, is staggering. And I really starting to get intensely uncomfortable with carrying 500 gigs of proprietary data around with me, even though it's encrypted, because I keep hearing stories, right? There was a, a, a journalist, I think, a woman in, in France that was stopped at Charles de Gaulle Airport and asked to decrypt her partition on her laptop yeah, right. uh, recently. Yep. And, yep. and the authorities are getting bolder and bolder about taking advantage of the lack of legal protections in international air travel, um, no matter what country you're in. And that makes me uncomfortable because I, I don't have anything to hide, but you know what? My business is my business. And on top of that, my job, my, my company, my boss expects me and really demands of me to protect the information that I'm entrusted with. And if I don't feel I can safely uh, conduct business, then I would rather not have that information that I've been entrusted with uh, be put at risk. So uh, I haven't loaded this version of Chrome OS yet. I have a Chromebook sitting here, one of these uh, cool Samsung ones that has a, uh, I think it's an Intel Atom processor. It's not one of the ARM-based ones. I think because we, we, what did we have um, that we, we were playing with before? Are those Acers or? Yeah, we had Acers. I think the Acers are ARM-based. So they get a lot better battery life. I might actually rather have one of those because, um, to be honest, uh, or actually, no, the one I have is ARM-based. I'm not sure. Maybe I'm mixing them up. But um, I'm getting to kind of really like the thing, right? It's not super high res or anything. But when I'm traveling, what do I do, right? Email? Tweet? Um, do a presentation, which, of course, is public. So it's not exactly secret data. I'm more than happy to have it there unencrypted. If if the TSA wants to learn more about securing and, and, <laughs> and their lives uh, against intrusion, 
um, yeah. you know, power to him. I, you know, I think everybody should learn about security, including the thieves. Well, that's exactly it. And unfortunately, the, the law isn't exactly on the traveler's side these days. So, you know, it, whatever we can do to, to help ourselves, um, then you know, the better. I think also the form factor is great, right? So as the, the net books are kind of officially dead, I think we can say now, um, th- this is a form factor that's that's nice to be able to carry around. And people who, you know, who do stuff like pen testing or whatever can can load something uh, or, 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 you know, a data recovery people load SIFT or load uh, Kali or something on there. Um, if they really want to and carry that around as their sort of testing laptop as opposed to their main uh, their main you know, work rig, if you will. Yeah. And with, with, with the speeds of SD cards, right? Like I threw a 32 gig, you know, class 11 or class 10 or whatever the SD cards are now for speed thing in there. And like, OK, so so big deal. The thing only has eight gigs of storage or four gigs of storage with a 32 or 64 or 128 or I mean, they're getting bigger and bigger. The SD cards. You slap that in there. That's actually almost as big as my SSD in my laptop. It may not be as fast, but again, what you could say, the form factor, it's pretty crazy. Now, I said crazy. So that kind of leads me to... Uh, I think I know where you're going. Yeah. I mean, it leads me to... to our, I almost said our friend, but I don't want to suggest we're friends. Uh, Linus Torvalds. Um, you know, of course, this podcast is about Linux, so we can't be too sacrilegious, but uh, he's quite famous for being a bit of an asshole. And I mean, that's just... The, the reality of the situation. He's difficult to get along with. He's rather, uh, he's described as gruff, which I think is a nice way of saying um, he's mean and doesn't really care what other people think. And uh, he got in some well, trouble lately. Chester, he, he, he's flat out said he does not care about you. And I don't think he was speaking about you specifically, but you know. I no, I think he was talking about me specifically, the same as he meant pretty much every other person on the planet, other than maybe his wife and children. Um, I, he was talking about you the same way Uncle Sam is talking about I want you when he's trying to recruit you into going to blow up small children in foreign countries. Um, you know, the guy is an interesting guy. I mean, he was asked a question about diversity and developing the Linux kernel and whether uh, perhaps it was something that we should be striving more toward because I think it's been a big topic in the um, news in general lately and that Intel made a big push recently to um, at CES, the the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas. Uh, I guess I, I should correct that. CES keeps telling journalists that they're not supposed to call it the Consumer Electronics Show anymore. It's just CES. The Intel made a push there, saying you know they're hoping to get in is that all like, departments. Is that like KFC not no longer being Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah, exactly like that. Yeah, no, and, and, and but I mean Intel very nobly was pushing for hey we want to see at least. 50% women, and we'd like to see a balanced workforce in all of our departments at Intel um, within a given time frame. I forget what the number of years was. I think it was around 10 years, hoping to achieve a reflective balance of the real world and, and to encourage uh, women and minorities to get involved in STEM. And, um, you know, whether they're going to have any success at that, uh, I don't know, because it's hard to know how deep their commitment is when they had booth babes at their stand while they were announcing this on the main stage. But Linus was kind of approached with a very similar kind of question going, well, you know, isn't there a lot to be had from diversity in kernel developers, right? Like, and, and Linux's attitude, Linux, uh, Linus's attitude clearly is more along the lines of, yeah, I don't really care who you are. I don't care about you. The reality is there's correct code and there's incorrect code and everything you write is probably incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, where he... I guess if I were to do some serious mental gymnastics, I, I could understand what he's saying, um, that it, it's a it's not a 
about you and I and everybody else. It's it's really about the code, right? It's about the kernel. It's about the the future vision and the direction of the project. Um, and and that sounds uh, really noble, I guess, in a sense, in a vacuum, right? Just like communism sounds like a good idea on paper. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think the whole diversity question has been explored so many times in many different realms, not only in technology, but I think, you know, if you look at science and technology, it's one of the areas that's probably lagging quite a bit in terms of uh, some diversity, specifically on, on the gendered side of things. So I think it's a fair question that people were asking, and I think that, you know, we should applaud Intel for at least trying. So in that sense, you know, it was just Linus being Linus, right? Just Linus being an asshole, Linus not wanting to answer the question and and sort of shoving it off to the side and, and living up to the mantle, I guess, of, uh, you know, this kind of gruff again, you know, in your words, this gruff personality. I, I, I think he doesn't bother to stop to even understand the question, which is why people get so irritated with him, right? Like, I looked at this and went, well, you know, what does diversity bring to the table? And you know what it brings to the table? It brings to the table different approaches to solving problems, different uh, ways of... Uh, approaching creativity in, in in creating new things um, in a product and having a monotone, monoculture, all guys, blah, blah, blah environment just doesn't lend us to necessarily be our best. Like maybe the Linux kernel is the best it can be with who we have contributing, but who's to say what it could be if there wasn't such an overarching power trying to control it and keep it the way one person wants it. And, you know, the answer could be, it could be an unmitigated disaster. Perhaps it could turn into Microsoft Windows Vista, um, in which case I'd be very <laughs> disappointed. But um, we don't really know because the Linux kernel from the perspective of Linus is run as a bit of a dictatorship. And that results in a, a reflection of its creator. And if you think Linus is perfect, then Linux is perfect. Yeah, so, you know, I'm involved in my own lifelong project, and, uh, you know, it's called Raising Children, right? And the fact is, the, as much as I would like to think that my wife thinks exactly like I do, I'm sure she would beg to differ, uh, you know, we do have different approaches, and I think the the end result of how we approach this project, you know, is, is, is great, because we both approach it from different angles we both you know we have our own unique perspectives and and solutions to some of the problems that we encounter so if you were to take that approach and sort of extrapolate out of that i know it's one very specific example but i think it's a it's a good example to say hey you know what uh, this approach of having different viewpoints and, and maybe culturally different viewpoints, whether it's gendered or not, uh, really does lend itself to a better product in the end. Yeah, I, I mean, occasionally Linux can be right. I, 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 I'm looking at a quote on another article that you sent me earlier saying, the reason I find GNOME limiting is because it is. <laughs> <laughs> Which I have to say, I've run into that problem myself. Um, I, I, I don't know that I would go as far as saying, quote, GNOME seems to be developed by interface Nazis. Um, uh, <laughs> this comes one. from a man who actually uses GNOME. So, uh, you know. Well, I, let's, I, let's be fair. He, he is not a full-time user of GNOME. He has a on-again, off-again relationship with GNOME, which I believe is currently on-again. So, Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's... I mean, that's the beauty of Linux, though, isn't it? Like, 
um, you know, you get ticked off at something, something isn't working the way you want, you know, you, you make a change and suddenly, you know, for this month, you know, enlightenment is king or, or XFCE or whatever, right? And the fact that you can choose and you're not stuck with one thing, I think is one of the reasons I actually like using Linux because um, while Windows 10, uh, I've played with the technical preview, is a significant step forward from Windows 8.1. I don't really like either one of the user interfaces on them. And the fact that I have to like buy tools for 1995 from some dodgy developer in Wisconsin to get the start menu to work the way it did 15 years ago, which I didn't even particularly like then, is just weird to me. Like, you know, the, if you don't like GNOME, like, Linus, you know, Linus wants to have a fit about GNOME, like, then don't use it right like there's plenty yeah. of alternatives there's a gazillion desktop environments and you know I, i'd like to see just why doesn't linus just go use rat poison then he won't have anything to complain about yeah i think i saw it was a reddit thread that i was reading this week that was talking about you know the, just that right it was okay so you don't like the default media player that comes with the linux distribution you chose then pick a different one right go go try something go try Rhythmbox. go try clementine go try something else right and that, that again like you say that's the beauty of linux you're not shoved into this box with one set of toys you have the whole toy store to play with at that point. Uh, but, you know, I think we can probably agree a little bit with uh, Linus that, uh, you know, Emacs is the tool of the devil. I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an Emacs guy. I, I have to, I have to say that. But when I even, you know, uh, it's one of the reasons I like using Arch is it doesn't really come with anything. It's brew your own, right? Like bring, bring your own apps, whatever it is you want to have. It's mostly all available, but it doesn't shove anything down your throat. It's quite nice. And yeah, the beauty and the bane of Arch is that it doesn't come with anything. I, I have to include one more Linus quote before we move on to the next story, because um, it's just such a favorite because uh, he, he really isn't one to mince words. And in a quote from October 4th, 2001, Linus was uh, purported to say, in short, just say no to drugs and maybe you won't end up like the herd people. <laughs> oh, Linus, what will he say next? I sure hope there's not a culture of people somewhere in the world known as the herd people. Uh, in this case, I think he's referring to the GNU herd um, project uh, uh, from Generalissimo Stallman, another man who isn't one to mince words. But on brighter notes, I, I found a really cool uh, Medium post. I, th I thought Medium was just for people that are unfortunately young and have a lack of wisdom and experience from their age deficit. And um, I found this article posted, why aren't we using SSH for everything? And I thought, what? You know, what do you mean SSH for everything? But I, I kind of found it a pretty compelling argument to say, you know, we've already developed very rich set of tools around security, identity, uh, being able to send binary data, regular data, interactive data, all these things, right? These problems have largely been solved inside of SSH. It's, it's I don't want to say infinitely flexible, but certainly in incredibly flexible in what types of things it has available inside of it. And uh, I thought it was pretty thought provoking. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, when I was reading the post, it's, I think we may have a bit of a leg up in that, you know, being security professionals, we, we do already use SSH for many a different thing. But uh, it, the article is, is well written and, and clearly spells out the fact that, you know, yeah, you can do a lot of stuff with SSH that people may not have thought of before. And, uh, you know, this security is just one of those things that it's it's hard to do right. And when you've got and, you know, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to say there's a tool that's going to do it all for you. But when you've got a tool that has been 
out there, proven, tested, and is 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 very capable. Uh, it'd be silly not to start exploring how we can use it in you know many different ways. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 people, you talk to people that um, aren't familiar with it, uh, just used it as a, a ability to shell into something, and they go, "Wow, yeah, SSH." I mean, it's just uh, all really is encrypted telnet. And it's like, no, it's not encrypted telnet. I mean, certainly that's one function of it is the ability to kind of act as an encrypted um, command line interface. But there's so much more there. I mean, I've been using it as a poor man's VPN for, she's well over 15 years. I used to work a lot in China back when the Great Firewall of China was a lot less sophisticated than it is these days. And back then, you know, an SSH tunnel was as good as completely blinding the firewall as to what you were doing. So, you know, you'd sit down at work in the morning at China Telecom and you'd log into your workstation and you're like, oh, you know, I'm just going to go check CNN. Oh, right. CNN wrote a story about the Chinese government today. That's blocked. So you can't get to CNN because there's unflattering stuff there. Right. And, uh, you know, first thing I do is just like, oh, Oh, right. SSH, you know, dash capital D, 8080, you know, myserver.com. Boom. Right. Created a tunnel, pointed my my Firefox socks proxy at it. And suddenly I've got a poor man's VPN and nobody can see what I'm doing. And it's completely invisible to the security team and it's invisible to the government. And well, it's not invisible, but it's cryptid gibberish. So, I, I mean, that's just a simple, simple example. And this article goes through all kinds of things like, you know, why don't we use SSH for MUDs? <laughs> um, <laughs> This kind of stuff. So I I found it entertaining and thought provoking. And uh, while some of it's a bit far fetched, I I don't I don't think SSH is a suitable replacement, for example, for HTTP. While obviously we do want to move toward a future where more and more of our Internet communications are encrypted. uh, I'm not sure SSH is the way to go. But, um, you know, I guess I just found it uh, very useful. And well, it's a start, right? If we can get people thinking of security as the default then I think we're heading towards a, a better you know, future, right? A better privacy future, if you will. So just merely saying, all right, let's, let's just start adopting SSH or something like it, right? That, that does a lot of this obfuscation, as you were saying, you know. And, and, and to, to your example, that, that poor man's VPN, yeah, you don't have to be behind the Great Firewall trying to use it. You could get Starbucks, be, you know, in some sort of open Wi-Fi uh, area that you can you can use SSH and both you and I, I know both you and I use this um, to to secure our traffic and so yeah if we can just start thinking in those terms of let's let's take security as as our default position then I think you know we're we're heading towards a, a bit of a brighter future when it comes to our our privacy. Now hold on just a second here. Let me uh, I've got, I'm, I'm reaching for my tinfoil hat here because um, <laughs> uh, you sent me another related story. You know, if you're going to use SSH, one of the benefits is detecting man in the middle. Um, one of the benefits is, of course, strong crypto. And, of course, that means doing it right. And a lot of the Snowden allegations coming up on two years uh, this June were related to weakening cryptography intentionally, you know, uh, elliptical curve encryption being compromised through NIST recommendations in the United States, this type of right. stuff. So I thought I thought this article went a, went a bit extreme. But for people who care about that security and privacy and do use SSH, um, there's another great article we'll have in the show notes about uh, how to secure that traffic the best we can pick the right ciphers, pick the right authentication methodologies, et cetera, in SSH. Because just like HTTP, SSH is sort of one of these, let's negotiate the best thing we both know about protocols, right? You connect and you go, hey, what do you offer? 
and the server goes, oh, I offer, you know, A, B, C, D, E. The client goes, oh, I don't know about A, but I know about B, C, D, and E, and E is the most secure. I'll pick that one, right? Right. And and by offering too many of these, of course, you leave yourself um, potentially vulnerable to a, a downgrade attack uh, where something can intentionally maybe man in the middle some of your traffic and try to force you to pick a weaker cipher. And, a la poodle, maybe? Yeah, yeah. A beast. Uh, there's all kinds of these things. Um, and that, you know, those types of things uh, you can eliminate by choosing just a set of strong ciphers and saying, this is all I support. And so I think a lot of uh, website administrators, because of Poodle, have done that with, say, their Apache and their Nginx configs to say, I'm only going to offer this list of ciphers. And, you know, to be honest, if you're still on IE6 and Windows XP, I'm okay with you not connecting to my site or maybe getting an error because we need to move on, right? We can't live in Windows XP world forever. And, uh, I, you know, SSH, I think, is even much, much more advanced than that. And that sure, maybe some of these cryptographic suites talked about in this story aren't available in very old versions of SSH. To be fair, if you're really concerned about the, the integrity of your communications, it's pretty trivial to upgrade your SSH. And maybe it's time to do it. Yeah, I think you're right. And you and I talked about this at one of the many conversations we had throughout the week. But, um, you know, it's a good opportunity to say, all right, well, you know, Certain ciphers may not be deprecated today, but you know what about five years from now, right? So these these offline attacks that people seem to be worried about, which are definitely a real thing, but uh, it's it's an opportunity to say, all right, I'm gonna go to the the highest strength cipher I can today, right now, and and not really compromise uh, on the lower ciphers because it's just worth it to my privacy and my security to do that. So I think this this article goes, you know, it does go into some depth about talking about the, the different types of key exchange protocols and ciphers that are available. But, you know, you, you can basically have this informed decision and, and make the choice for yourself. And, and it talks a bit about hardening and uh, how to use SSH properly. Well, if like me, you store your passport in a NFC shielded pocket, carry enough tinfoil just in case it's necessary to create a helmet, uh, etc., then I think following all the recommendations in this article uh, would be a good idea. But if nothing else, I think it's a good romp through understanding why. I mean, that's, I guess, the reason I really like the article. It wasn't step yeah, one, exactly. do this, copy this config file from this paste bin or, you know, this kind of thing. I think it was step one. What happens first? Ah, we have to authenticate that we're connecting to the thing we want to connect to. So because, you know, we need to verify one another's identities, here's the ways we can do it. I'm saying, you know, version A, D, and F are perfect because of this. I'm suspect of B, C, and D. That kind of thing, right? It was totally a walkthrough of what the thought process was for this guy. And it wasn't just some rant. It was a well-thought-out, well-executed story. Absolutely. Speaking of uh, things that are well thought out, it seems that uh, there's many organizations now that are, are sort of looking at the open source community as a place of refuge, if you will, from some of the monopolies out there. And one of the stories that struck us both was the University Paris 8, which decided to basically ditch Photoshop in favor of Krita. I think this is a great story because it does illustrate a couple points. It does show that you can build a curriculum around uh, an open source tool. And at the end of the day, you know, you're hoping these these people graduate and are productive in their chosen fields. And so even though you're not teaching them on, you know, the let's call it the de facto standard, right? Um, you're, you're using an open source tool. There is a future for them. And so, so that was a good thing. And then the other thing is, you know, a bit of a middle finger at Adobe, I guess, for some of their uh, recent business decisions. 
Well, yeah, I, I think this is a real rebellion against this cloud movement. And I don't blame schools in particular because they're always under a lot of financial pressure. Um, you know, there I kind of see two different types of cloud thing. There, there's cloud things that makes sense because there's sort of a service oriented approach. Uh, I think Gmail is probably a great example of that, right? Like it's a service. It's not really a product. It's a it's a service. You can either run your own mail server, you can run Postfix, you can run XM, you can run Exchange, you can do whatever you want, or you can pay somebody else to do it for you. And so that that that's a logical thing to pay an incremental fee per month as a service. Anti-spam is another exactly. good example of yep. that. Um, but then there's things that have traditionally been products that a lot of people don't really care about being updated or or brought along and they want to make a choice and microsoft office or office 365 as they would prefer you to think of it um and and adobe now with the cs suite has just gone to this cloud thing and it just that's a huge cost impact you know i i have a friend who used to be a jeweler and he bought adobe illustrator 4 you know full price 900 bucks or whatever it was for the license it was all he needed right he designed jewelry for the rest of his career with that tool he didn't need five. He didn't need six. It didn't need to be in the cloud. He just was, you know, really loved their tool. Like Illustrator is awesome. It's a great tool. But, you know, that's all he needed. He didn't want to subscribe to it. And I think that's the, the position that the schools are in. And I, aside from, I get giddy every time somebody chooses open source over closed source in these types of situations. But even more important than that, what if I had kids in school, you mentioned, you, you know, you're raising a family. I wouldn't want them to learn Excel. I'd want them to learn math and spreadsheets. And I wouldn't want them to learn Photoshop. I want them to learn art and digital tools for manipulating art, right? So these kids learning Krita in the University of Paris 8 aren't learning Photoshop or Krita. They're learning art. And they're learning how to use digital tools to manipulate art. And when they leave, they may go immediately subscribe to uh, Adobe CS Suite in the cloud. That's their prerogative. But if they learn the basics... Now the world is your oyster, right? Like literally, you can do anything you want. We have to stop thinking about classes that teach you an application. What are you saying? You're going to be a robot? You're going to go operate robots in a factory somewhere to build something? I mean, this is the 21st century. Yeah, I agree with you. I think, uh, you know, the whole idea of learning, as you say, just one specific product is is a bit limiting. And I think, you know, the, the product is the tool, but the creativity comes from learning how to use the different aspects of the tool and different features the tool and you know while one suite may not have all the same exact features as the other i think uh that you know they come pretty close these days and the the fact of the matter is it's it's all about how you can use your creativity to achieve an end product and i think this is where the open source community can really uh really shines is is giving us again you know back to our earlier discussion giving us all the options and choices if you don't like this particular tool well use that other tool and uh you know you're you're not bound by the actual product itself or better yet um take the tool and change it <laughs> i mean that's that's the freedom right yeah, exactly like um, the, I'm not a big fan of uh, just a wanton forking of projects, but I mean, the reality is if something doesn't work the way you want, submit a patch. And if they don't like your patch, make your own version. I mean, it's it, I've done it myself on a rare occasion, small changes I wanted. I didn't like the way something worked. I didn't like a default. Just went in and tweaked it, made my own little compile, did it on my own machine. I don't need to submit it to the world. Nobody else probably cares. But for me, it mattered and I could do it. I had the freedom to do it. While we're in Europe, I guess we could talk about City of Munich joined the Document Foundation Advisory Board. Of course, the Document Foundation is uh, closely associated in most people's minds with OpenOffice and LibreOffice, which is a uh, the, the Document Foundation is responsible for the official XML specifications for the um, uh, document formats that are, are openly published that anybody can implement. 
I have to be careful with the wording here because Microsoft has some very confusing wording for their own allegedly open format that's still remarkably incompatible with everything else. But I, I kind of love the fact that government's getting involved. I, I personally have the opportunity to work a lot with governments and um, countries around the world. And a long-term concern is archival access to information. Like we're, we're taking all these paper documents from the last 500 years in many countries and digitizing them and making them available. And now we're locking them in proprietary formats. And it turns out like work that was done in 2003, that stuff got stuffed into one format of Office, won't even open in a new version of Office because the specification was never published clearly enough that the people have access to things. And what's going to happen 10 years, 20 years, 50 years from now, if we're locked into things that we don't even understand how they worked because they were owned by some particular company? Uh, it's a genuine concern. So having City of Munich on an advisory board with a very archival view, I thought it's pretty cool. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think uh, if, if you look back at what the City of Munich accomplished, I think it was uh, a not insignificant project, right? They migrated uh, about 16,000 PCs um, to an open source platform and uh, using, you know, both uh, the operating system itself and, and the tools that, that sit on top of that uh, as as their main workstation. And so, yeah, it is great. I think um, being able to, for them to, to have the experience of doing, migrating to an open source platform and then being able to feed back into the community um, as as a, a, a you know a true organization that has real world problems to solve while using an open source platform is just is just great um, and uh, you know sort of on the heels of that story we also saw that there was a release of a new tool for you Android users out there specifically for LibreOffice. So there's the LibreOffice Viewer Beta. Uh, if you look at uh, the Document Foundation's blog, uh, is now available for Android, and it can be downloaded directly from the uh, Google Play Store. Uh, now, we both downloaded this recently, and I think it, it actually does deserve the tag of beta for now, but I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what it can do uh, you know, a little bit down the road. Yeah, yeah, I, I thought it was pretty neat. I'll post a screenshot in the uh, uh, show notes on the blog at linuxatwork.org of what I was able to, you know, I just pulled up a, a, a standard uh, ODP presentation I had written in LibreOffice. Uh, I use LibreOffice for all my presentations professionally, and so I have a lot of content. I'm going to try to run through this thing and see how it works. But yeah, it's got a little work to go. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're a little glitchy. I'll, I'll post a couple screenshots of different things I have just so people can kind of see if they don't have an Android convenient or don't have a lot of LibreOffice content to feed into it to play with it. But it is a really encouraging. I mean, LibreOffice has been embracing the the mobile community quite well. I'm very pleased to see they have the LibreOffice remote, which is actually a great I love tool. that thing. Exactly. If you're a LibreOffice user using LibreOffice Impress, um, you can control your slides and uh, advance them and see your notes and all that stuff on a mobile device or a tablet uh, disconnected from your laptop. So using that as a remote instead of like a traditional clicker. And I really, really like that because, well, and even more, like it used to only work over Bluetooth, which can be awkward depending on your Linux distro and what support you have. Um, but now it even works over Wi-Fi. So as long as you're on the same Wi-Fi network as your laptop, you can completely control your presentation from that. So that that really matured a lot in the last year, year and a half. Uh, actually, I think it'll be two years um, next month that they released that because you and I started using that at the RSA conference
Institutes in uh, 2013, um, in February of 2013. So that's really quite mature now. So this is the next one, I guess, that's going to kind of go along. And for those of you who don't like um, being trapped in the Google proprietary Play Store, uh, my understanding is the LibreOffice Viewer is also available on the F-Droid market. And um, you can identify it on the Google Play market as the one that's being distributed by the organization called Calabra. That's right. And speaking of things maturing, uh, SystemD. So, you know, this is an, an interesting, it's one of these interesting discussions, and I'm using that term loosely, uh, in the community where there seems to be quite the divide as to whether this is a true init system uh, in the, you know, in the spirit of Unix-like init systems or whether it's more, you know, faithful to the way Linux does things. Anyway, we won't get into that discussion, but SystemD's been around for a little while now. I think uh, if you look at some of the major Linux distributions that have actually adopted systemd SystemD. Uh, there's really only a handful right now. So like Debian, Gentoo, and Ubuntu, according to at least the Wikipedia page, are the ones that haven't enabled it by default, uh, whereas most of the other major Linux distros have. Uh, so there's a bit of SystemD news this week as well. Uh, maybe you want to go over that a little bit uh, in, into some detail. Well, I mean, the whole SystemD thing is pretty interesting. I mean, it's controversial because it's a complete departure from the traditional uh, Unix init system. And I, I quite like it. I mean, the problem is getting your head around it. It's just this enormous beast, which is why people don't like it. It's a bit of a monolithic thing. And um, it can be quite intimidating. But every major distro now has officially adopted it, including Ubuntu. Uh, although Ubuntu, I don't believe, has shipped anything with it yet. They are replacing Upstart with systemd so whether you like it or not you're gonna have to live with it and i like this uh, article around uh learning systemd by matthias uh Genier. i'm not quite sure how to say his name correctly but uh it's just kind of a, a list of resources for learning systemd i mean it's a completely different way at looking at the world and it, it kind of walks you through step by step, like how does it work? What happens when system D boots? You're like, you know, A leads to B, B leads to C, D leads to E. Then in fact, the, the brilliant part about system D, of course, is that D doesn't lead to E. D leads to E, S, and Q at the same time, which is part of the brilliance of it. It speeds things up quite a lot. But I just I've always struggled with every time I need to know something about systemd, I'm Googling for a specific thing because there was no definitive place to go to learn about it. And this um webpage kind of links to all the definitive places to learn about systemd and if you're a linux admin or a linux desktop user you cannot keep your head in the sand any longer if you're not going to learn systemd because you will break your system and you will need to learn how to fix it and if you don't know how it works you're going to be bashing your head into the wall or in the you know irc channel being yelled at by people who have nothing better to do than hang out on irc <laughs> Yeah, and I think, to, back to your example of A leading to B leading to C, I think, my opinion, one of the things that's great about System D is the fact that A doesn't have to lead to B. A only leads to B when B is necessary, right? So you, you, you're you taking this lighter approach, if you will. Um, you've got all this flexibility and capability within. So, yes, it is it is big in the sense that there's a lot of capability in, in, in System D, but it's optional. A lot of it is optional, right? So if you don't want to use Network D uh, because uh, for whatever reason, you know, your Wi-Fi adapter doesn't support it, then don't, you know, just keep using Network Manager. And But the option is there and it only loads the stuff that you want and need. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been playing a lot with the latest SystemD builds, um, a little bit with their containers stuff, using it for time synchronization, using it for, uh, as you say, network enablement and 
some of it's great, some of it's not. And of course, like anything controversial, there's a controversial person behind it. Leonard Pottering um, is uh, best known for having created Pulse Audio, which is also a controversial project. So there's been no lack of drama around this topic, but I have to just come down to like it or not, suck it up. It's here. And since your distro is going to be built on it, you better learn it. And if you don't like it and you're going to choose a distro that's not built on it, if you work in this business and professionally are responsible for Linux, it's going to be shoved down your throat anyway. It's part of CentOS. It's part of Red Hat. Debian chose to go with it. I'm not sure they've implemented it yet, but Debian's going with it. Um, Arch uses it. Everybody's using it. So it's one of these things sort of like voting for president or prime minister. None of the options may be to your perfect desire, but you're going to have to suck it up and live with it. <laughs> yeah. For those of you who still have a Betamax player out there, it's time to switch. Ah, uh, what do I do with my HD DVD? <laughs> I was going to say send them back to Sony, but they weren't the ones behind it, were they? They were Blu-ray. <laughs> no, no, no. That was, a, that was a Microsoft debacle. But um, last but not least, uh, I'm always a sucker for security stories. And there is a big security story in the Linux community that uh, actually surfaced today. It's known as the ghost vulnerability, a clever play on the actual flaw. There's a flaw in the glibc library, which is um, a very integral part of an incredible amount of Linux operating systems and tools. And probably the most used glibc function by many applications, which is known as get host by name. Hence the ghost. Exactly. The the cleverness of calling it a ghost. But uh, get host by name is basically do a DNS lookup, right? I, 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 want, I want to get to a host by its name rather than IP. Get host by name has a buffer overflow vulnerability. Of course, this vulnerability was actually fixed back in 2013. So you'd have to wonder, you know, why is this an issue? It was fixed in May of 2013. But the, the reason it's an issue is it was never flagged as a security vulnerability. Like the actual fix was just like, oh, this is sloppy code. There's a bug here. We'll fix it. And because it wasn't marked as a security flaw, a lot of long-term support releases of Linux um, never bothered to go beyond it because changing glibc is quite an effort. Uh, I've been speaking to some developers about this and there's a lot of fretting going, oh man, like swapping out glibc is a bit of uh, work. Um, the people discovered at Qualys, the uh, uh, vulnerability um, discovery people, uh, are planning on publishing a, a Metasploit module that will exploit the XM mail server using this flaw uh, completely remotely, regardless of security mitigations in place. It will just completely own a system. So it's quite serious and bad. So whatever distro you're on, you got to get your updates. Um, make sure you're running at least, um, I believe it's glibc 2.18, something like that. So, I mean, reality is there's going to be fixes from every vendor very soon. Get them as quickly as you can. Um, if you've got those servers sitting in the back room that are running old versions of CentOS, Red Hat, Debian, even Ubuntu 12.04 still used this uh, vulnerable version. Uh, you got to get those updated. So um, I, that'll conclude, I think, the first edition of the Linux at Work podcast. And if you have any feedback for us, uh, we really appreciate that because we're just getting things going and we want to hear what you have to say. Yes, we're definitely interested in in the feedback from the community. Um, just like Linux is a community project, uh, we, we'd like to maintain that spirit in, uh, in our little project here as well. So this has been Linux at Work Episode 1 with your hosts John Shire and Chester Wisniewski. 
Yeah, and to contact us, please uh, visit our blog where we post all of our podcasts at linuxatwork.org. You can email us at hosts at linuxatwork.org. Um, we're on Twitter at Linux at Work. We have a Google Plus page, and you can come to our Reddit and have a chat with us at reddit.com slash r slash Linux at Work. <laughs> You got everything gonna be everyone gotta be everyone Don't say you got anything gotta be everything